Welcome to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast, a product of Talent 409. I'm your host, Colin Cernelia. Go to talent409.com to see how we can help your team or organization with their leadership and culture development. On each episode of the pod, we'll bring you conversations with people that display the seven pillars of dynamic leadership. Someone who possesses those seven pillars has courage, driving accountability, integrity, grit, great communication skills, a high level of emotional intelligence, and they can motivate others. Have questions for me or a guest? Email Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at talent409.com. And let's chat. This podcast is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Radio.com, iTunes, and Apple Podcasts. If you like the show, please take a minute and on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and review. Help us find other dynamic leaders and help dynamic leaders find us. Mail time. If you've made it this far, then you know you've made it to the first ever mailbag episode. Welcome on in to an exciting opportunity as we listen to questions from our loyal listeners. This was as difficult of a podcast as I've ever had to do. The questions you all gave me were so great, and I can't tell you how appreciative I am of this opportunity. So let's not wait any longer. Let's dive right into this episode. Here is the first ever mailbag edition. Okay, everyone, welcome back to the Dynamic Leaders Podcast. Our mailbag episode is here. Now, the way I went about these questions is I saw them when I first received them. I looked at them. I made sure that they were questions that I could answer, and then I closed them, and I'm opening them up again for the first time during this recording. I wanted to make it out to be like it was a seminar setting and there was a Q&A after the seminar. If I was up on stage and someone in the audience asked me a question, I wouldn't have time to prep the answers. So tried to make this as real as possible. I will do as little editing as I can throughout. But with that, let's dive in to our first question. This question comes from our listener, Christine. Christine wrote, When it comes to leading people and being in a position of management, how do you walk the line between trust and micromanaging? I often give ultimate trust to my team and then mistakes are made that I'm held to. So then I feel I have to step in and manage more. Looking for advice. This is a great question to open up with, mainly because we're talking about trust. And trust, especially in the corporate world, but I see it also in the athletics world, is an aspect that is so hard to come by because as individuals, we're conditioned to be closed off, not to trust people, to make people earn our trust. We don't usually just give trust and let people take it away from us. We usually make them earn it. And that can be in a professional setting, that can be in personal life, but from the studies and the research that I've done, more often than not, when it comes to trust, people make you earn it. Think about if you were on the job hunt and you were working in a role where you could be remote and work away from the office three or four days a week. Nobody says a thing to you, but you're not in love with the work that you do or you're not in love with the growth opportunities. So you want to see if the grass is greener on the other side and you start looking around to other companies and every single company that you interview with tells you that you need to be in the office from eight to five. 
And you think to yourself, well, I'm in a company right now where I can work from home or work remotely, wherever that is, three to four days a week. Maybe this isn't so bad after all. But the question remains, why don't companies, why don't business leaders, why don't coaches give us the trust that they tell us they're giving us? A lot of people will say that they trust you, but they don't actually mean it. And they don't ever do anything to show you that they trust you. They make you sit in a cubicle for 40 hours plus a week. They make you show up at the crack of dawn for workouts and they have to watch every single thing that you do throughout that workout. Trust, I realize, is an extremely hard line to walk and it's an extremely hard line to determine. But as a leader, you almost have to give away more trust than you're probably comfortable doing. And I say that as a person who may be over-trusting and has gotten burnt a few times, especially in my personal life, but one who has also had a lot of friction in the business world because of a lack of trust. With this question, I think where I keep coming back to, the listener asked, how do you walk the line between trust and micromanaging? Well, the right thing to say, the PC thing to say is to tell your employees what you want done and let them surprise you with the results. I've read that in multiple books and it sounds amazing, but more often than not, the employees or the athletes don't have the tools or don't have the knowledge to surprise us with the results. And that's not necessarily a reflection of the organization or the team. It may just be where that individual is in their development. So Colin, get to the point. What I'm trying to say is when it comes to trust in micromanaging, I wouldn't look at it so much as a team perspective as I would from an individual perspective. I think as a leader, you have to be able to determine how much somebody needs guidance. For some people, guidance can seem like micromanagement. And for those type of people, you need to know that you need to step back a little bit. But other people will crave what is quote unquote micromanaging, but never say anything about it because they don't want to come off as if they don't know anything. They're afraid to look like they are the loose link in the team. So understanding from a leadership perspective that not every person is at the same stage in their development will help you determine how much of the quote-unquote micromanaging you need to do. And if you don't want to call it micromanaging, just think of it as guidance. And if you need to address it with a certain individual on your team and you don't want to use the word micromanaging, use the word guidance. Go up to that person and say, hey, I noticed that it looks like you're getting frustrated with XYZ or it looks like you've been struggling the past few days with this or with that. Can I offer some guidance? I think the way that you phrase something, much like anything in life, and the way that you approach the situation will go a long way towards continuing to build that trust because ultimately the working relationship that you have is going to allow you to loosen the strings and let your employees do that work that surprises you. But you can't get to that point magically. And sometimes it takes a little bit of work on the front end to make sure that the people on your team are not only capable of doing the work, but they understand what's expected of them. So 
again, this question, trust, micromanaging, I would take it an individual approach, one by one, figure out where each person is in their development, how much you need to guide them instead of micromanage them, and then that can help you determine your overall team philosophy. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take a lot of discovery from leadership, from coaches, and it's also going to take cooperation from athletes and from employees. It needs to be a working relationship, and that's why I think if you phrase it in a way that says, how can I guide you? How can I help you? Versus thinking of it in a micromanaging way, you'll get more of an accepting attitude out of it because nobody wants to be micromanaged, whether you're a leader, whether you're an employee, whether you're a coach, or whether you're an athlete. Nobody wants it. The science is there. The data is there. It's not good. But there's a difference between micromanaging and guiding. And I think ultimately that's where the magic lies in this question. Our next question comes from our listener, Snea. Snea says, how to handle disappointment in the workplace. Your leader promised to do something for you, but couldn't do it because of some XYZ factors. Ah, the old disappointment at work. Who hasn't had that feeling? I know I have, and I know I'll have it in the future too. Disappointment is unfortunately just a part of work, just as it is a part of life. But as with disappointment in life, you want to try and limit that disappointment that you feel at work. Nobody wants to work at a place where they're always disappointed, upset, angry, whatever word you want to throw in there. But I think the bigger premise to this question is your leader promising something to you, but then doesn't follow through on that. So this question is more on the employee side than it is the leader side. How should you react when you're quote unquote promised something? Maybe it's a raise, maybe it's a title bump, maybe it's more playing time, or maybe it's a promotion from assistant to head coach. How do you handle the disappointment of a superior going back on their word? Well, honestly, and this goes back to to the first question, this is an individual case-by-case basis. Every situation is going to be a little bit different. So I'm reminded of a formula by the Kite Brothers, who do a lot of work up in the Ohio area around leadership and culture development. The formula that they use is E plus R equals O. E stands for event, R stands for response, and O equals outcome. So event plus response equals outcome. In each of these situations, you must understand as an individual what the event is, what your response is going to be, and how that's going to affect the outcome. So let's take a work example. You're promised a raise, it's the end of September, and you were promised that raise on July 1st. You've been a noble soldier, you haven't said anything, but for the last three months, it's been eating you up inside. And even worse, nobody from leadership has said anything to you about it. Almost like they want you to forget that they ever promised you anything in the first place. So the event is you were promised a raise on July 1st. It is now September 30th, and you have yet to receive any notification about that raise. Your response to that was to say nothing. And let's be clear, your response to this point was to say nothing. Your response at any point can change. 
And that's ultimately going to change the last part of the formula, the O, or the outcome. So right now, the event is promised to raise, didn't get it. Your response was say nothing. The outcome, you're frustrated at work. You think you've been lied to. You want to maybe explore new opportunities. This is a conversation that I have a lot of times with employees and with athletes where I have to bring them back down to earth a little bit. And this is where a lot of us can get caught up in our day-to-day and we can puff our chest out and think that we're so valuable. In organizations, big or small, in teams, in programs, big or small, there is so much that goes on up top on a day-to-day basis that it's difficult a lot of times to come through on deadlines. And that's a conversation for another day because that is an efficiency issue, but it's something that is very common in the working world and it's something that's very common in college athletics and in high school athletics as well. There's just a lot of administrative work that goes on up top. There's a lot of people that you're trying to keep happy. And as employees and as athletes, sometimes we forget that the people at top have feelings and have lives too. We just see it as more of a transactional thing. Oh, you promised me a raise. How come I didn't get it? You're not going to give it to me? Okay, I'm going to be passive aggressive. I'm going to leave. See ya. I'm going to blow you up on glass door, whatever it is. So let's be clear. I'm not saying that it's right for employers or for coaches to promise things that they can't come through with. I'm just saying that it's a part of life and that it happens. And the only way to really rectify a situation like this is to say something. I'd be willing to bet that 90% of people, myself included, in a situation like this, more often than not, would go about it initially at least, not saying anything, hoping that the situation will resolve itself. But what I found is that directly communicating and not letting things simmer and not letting things drag on can speed up the process tenfold. It will surprise you some of the responses that you get, people simply forgetting. Sometimes they'll tell you it's stuck in a certain part of the process, but at least you've put yourself out there and you've said, hey, this is what you've told me. This is what I expect. How is this situation going to play out? Because then you can ultimately plan the outcome for the response to you speaking up. And that's ultimately what you want to take away from this. In any situation, you don't want to leave it up to the other person. You don't want the disappointment to come because you didn't speak up and you didn't have the courage to fight for yourself. We all have to fight for ourselves. That's how humanity has gotten to this point in the world. And if we don't fight for ourselves and we give up, that's probably the worst thing that you can do. I think about Coach Mike Hopkins. This is a very Syracuse basketball connection for any of my Syracuse listeners. Was a coach in waiting for a very long time at Syracuse University. He was in a situation where he was really happy. He was very comfortable. He wanted to be the next coach at Syracuse. All indicators at least said that from the media and from the university. He was officially named the coach in waiting. There got to be a point about three or four years ago where they had Coach Jim Beheim retire. And then all of a sudden, for whatever reason, probably because Jim Beheim's a super competitive guy and he wasn't ready to retire, he decided that he wasn't going to retire. 
And Mike Hopkins decided after that offseason, he got an offer from Washington University. He's from the West Coast. His parents are still out there. It made a lot of sense for him to leave. And he ultimately left. And that's a situation where I'm sure he was promised time and time again, just wait it out. It's going to happen. You're going to be the next coach at Syracuse. You're going to take over for someone who's going to have over a thousand wins for a program that's one of the best in the Northeast. What else could you want? That's why people wait out opportunities. But I'm sure there was disappointment after disappointment along the way as well. How could you not be disappointed when other universities are coming to you year after year asking you to be the head coach and you having to turn them down saying you're waiting for somebody that clearly doesn't want to walk away anytime soon. So there's all different types of situations where disappointment's going to come across. Without knowing exactly what happened in the Mike Hopkins case, I'd have to bet that when Beheim decided that he didn't want to retire, Hopkins finally said to himself, hey, I need to speak up. I need to say something. I need to do what's best for me and what's best for my family. And ultimately, that meant a very difficult decision in leaving Syracuse behind. So my advice to this question, anytime you face disappointment because somebody promised something to you and didn't deliver, whether that's in the corporate world or in a college athletic setting or even a high school athletic setting, make sure that you stand up for yourself. Say something, ask the questions, as difficult as it can be, at least you'll understand where things stand and you won't just be coming up with scenarios in your head driving yourself crazy. It's the best thing you can do And it might not work, and it might not make anything better, but at least you've stood up for yourself, and that's what's most important. Okay, on to our third question. This question comes from Devin, and Devin wrote, We recently had a new director start in our office. He will essentially need to be trained by many of his subordinates to learn how to do his job. How should a leader act knowing he needs to lean heavily on some entry to mid-level employees to become the true leader of the office or team? How should a leader act if the employees react negatively on needing to train their boss? What is an example of a successful transition? And even better, what is an example of a disaster of a transition? All right, so Devin asked three separate questions. He asked, how should a leader act knowing he needs to lean heavily on subordinates to help him become the true leader of the team. He asked, how should a leader act if the employees react negatively to wanting to help him? And what is an example of a successful transition and what is an example of a disaster? This is quite the doozy of a question. I'm going to take it one by one and I'll repeat the questions as I go through them so that we can stay pace with Devin here. So I think the first question is probably the easiest. How should a leader act knowing he needs to lean heavily on some entry-level to mid-level employees to become the true leader of the office or the team? Well, you'd have to think that that knowledge is not something new to that person. When they were coming through the interview process, for example, they had to have known that they were going to have to rely on people who were, quote-unquote, below them on the organizational chart in order to get up to speed. And that person agreed, theoretically, in the interview process to be a good soldier and to let people help him 
get up to speed as fast as possible for the betterment of the team. This is definitely not something out of the ordinary, although I would say it is rare that entry-level type employees are helping that person get up to speed because I'd argue that those entry-level employees aren't really up to speed themselves yet. But then again, I'd have to really be in that organization or that team that you're a part of to truly understand that. So I'm just making an assumption, but it's a general assumption at that. So the leader should act accordingly. He, and I'm saying he because Devin said it's a he in the office, should be the one who's trying to soak up all of the information, should be the one asking the questions, should be the one showing the enthusiasm for wanting to learn. He should also be starting to build his relationships with his employees. You can do both things simultaneously. You can learn, but you can also teach. And I think that's the point of a true leader is that leaders who are effective and leaders that are sought out by other people are the ones who are always learning. They're the ones that realize that they don't know everything. So whether or not this person is brand new or they've been with the company or the organization for 10 years, the fact is they should always be open to learning. Simultaneously, again, they should be starting to build that trust and that communicative relationship with their employees to understand the working relationship and how that's going to be moving forward. The second question is, how should a leader act if the employees react negatively on needing to train the boss? That one's definitely a little bit more difficult. It's very harsh to say, cut loose of the drama right away, but you don't want people sucking away the life of the office. More appropriately, I think a new leader would come in and at least give the employees an opportunity to change their mind on how they want to react to having to help him. Anytime there's change, there's going to be resistance. So that part of it is just a natural part of the equation. But again, I think it's how the leader comes in and understands that he needs to build a working relationship with each individual and as a whole team. Because the reasons for not wanting to help somebody can vary. And if you can build that trust and you can have a conversation with an individual and say, hey, is there a reason that you're not on board? And somebody says what that reason is, at least you can try to rectify it, right? You can try to work through it. Maybe they'll say something that just blows you away and you're like, no, there's no way this is going to work. See you later. And that person may be happy walking out the door. But I think more often than not, it's just the resistance to change and understanding what that change is going to look like is why people react negatively in the first place. So helping them through an individual basis, again, working through that transition is going to, I think, really help change those negative feelings if there are any lingering with any of the employees. What is an example of a successful transition? Good question. I'm going to move over to sports for this because I have a high public profile example that I can give and people can do their own additional research into this if they find it applicable and 
if they find it is something that could potentially work for them in a situation like this. But I think one of the examples of a successful transition that I can think of is with Aaron Boone in the New York Yankees. Aaron Boone came in to be the Yankees manager without a single day of not just managerial experience, but coaching experience. He had never led a team before, but he had great communication skills and he understood analytics, which is a huge part of baseball these days. So although there were other first-time managers in 2018 when Boone got the job, such as Boston's Alex Cora, Cora had at least been a bench coach for the Houston Astros prior to taking that position and won the World Series with the Astros in 2017. So Cora wasn't a complete outsider, whereas Boone came from the outside. He was in the press box doing Major League Baseball games for ESPN. Now, granted, he played baseball. His family has really deep baseball roots. His grandfather played baseball. His father played baseball. He played baseball. His brother, Brett, played baseball. When I say played baseball, they all played Major League Baseball. So they all got to the highest level of baseball. His dad was a manager for a very long time. So Boone's been around the game. He knows what baseball is. He knows what it takes to win. But he didn't have any experience leading. And one of the things that the Yankees did was have a holdover from the Joe Girardi staff in Larry Rothschild, who is a former manager himself. He'd managed the Tampa Bay Rays and was the longtime pitching coach under Joe Girardi when Joe Girardi was the manager of the Yankees prior to the 2018 season. Keeping Rothschild on staff was a really important aspect for the Yankees, and I'm almost 100% sure, although I would have to fact check it, I'm pretty sure that the Yankee brass, so Brian Cashman, Hale Steinbrenner, when they offered Boone the job, one of the strings attached was that Larry Rothschild was also going to be on the staff. There might have been some leeway in letting Boone pick some of the other coaches, but as far as Larry Rothschild went, that was a package deal. Either he was going to be the manager of the Yankees with Larry, or he wasn't going to be the manager. And this allowed for a really successful transition because Rothschild had that managerial experience, but he also had the experience in the dugout and in the clubhouse, something that Boone only had from a player's perspective and couldn't relate to yet on a managerial perspective. So anytime that there was adversity, even though Boone was somebody who was said to be a great communicator, they didn't know how he would react in bad times and in negative times. And in New York, when the pressure is high and the media is in your face all the time, it's important to be able to stay calm and stay collective with your thoughts and with your actions. Having Rothschild there as a sounding board and as somebody who could say, I've been through this before, here's what to do, here's my advice, I think that was really important and it's a reason that the Yankees have had two really successful seasons so far under Aaron Boone. An example of a disaster of a transition The final aspect of Devin's four-part question. So this is difficult because I'm not privy to all the information. So a lot of what I get to say is made on assumptions if I'm talking about any experience outside of my own. And we know what they say about making assumptions. But I think given the circumstances and the question that Devin asked, I'm going to half answer his question in this reason that it's only going to be a half answer is because I'm not exactly sure 
what the infrastructure is at this university that I'm going to talk about in just a second. I'm just aware of the disaster that is going on right now. And a lot of that can be traced back to rushing a person into a position of leadership. So we can end this question with a lesson and say that rushing somebody into a position of leadership, again, as I've said many times on this podcast, is one of the worst things that you can do. If somebody's not ready to manage people, if somebody's not ready to support people, then inevitably disaster is going to set in. Florida State University is a hotbed for college football, but over the past few years, they've just been a disaster of a program. And a lot of that has to go with the instability that has happened at the head coach position, which at the college level is an extremely important glue piece. You can argue in sports and in organizations just how important middle managers are sometimes, but in college football, a head coach, they might as well be the athletic director because they're the one that's more often than not visible on a daily or weekly basis. They're the ones in front of the team all the time. Their direction, especially in a revenue building sport like that, is much more powerful most of the time than what an athletic director or a president wants. When Jimbo Fisher left Florida State abruptly after the 2017 season, I want to say off the top of my head, Willie Taggart was brought in. And Taggart spent a few seasons as a head coach prior to that, had pretty good success at, I'm pretty sure, South Florida and Oregon. Oregon definitely prior to coming over to Florida State. Since he came over to Florida State, a program that was in transition has only gotten worse. And from the outside, and admittedly, I don't follow Florida State football very closely, but it seems like there is bad communication amongst the coaching staff and how they should be handling the kids, how they should be handling playing time, what type of offense they should run. Literally everything you can think of from a head coaching perspective is in disarray right now. And there was a lot of talk I can remember when Taggart got the job that he might have moved a little too quickly through the coaching ranks, but he had had success and he had success at a Power 5 program, Oregon, in the Pac-12 So I'm not faulting Florida State for taking a chance on somebody who's maybe a little green, but what I am trying to make people aware of is I think a lot of times we overlook people's deficiencies because we see their successes and it seems glorious and it seems like they're never going to do anything wrong, but if somebody's not ready to be in a leadership position then it can go bad really quickly. And we see that all the time at major programs, at major organizations, whatever it may be. So again, Devin, I know that doesn't answer your question 100%, but it's because I'm just not privy to all of these different situations. So I'm trying to give you the best I can here. And I hope that I answered that doozy of a question as best as possible. Okay, my next questions come from Rachel. Rachel asked a couple really interesting questions, so these were probably the most fun questions I had to answer this entire mailbag. But her first question was, how do you decide who you will interview next for your podcast? Slash, could you maybe explain or shed some light into the behind the scenes of your pod schedule? I think so many people don't realize what goes into a podcast. Having been on two now, I've realized it's a lot. And a lot was in caps. 
A lot of planning, editing, seeking people, etc. Is this really even a question? LOL. <laughs> well, Rachel, yes, it's a question with many questions attached to it. So my criteria for who I'm bringing on as a podcast guest is pretty simple. I look for individuals who have an athletic background. Most of those individuals played at the collegiate level. Some of them finished out in high school and some of them even played professionally. But they all have some type of athletic background and can speak to how sports help them grow and how athletics and competition help them in any capacity of life, whether that's school, personal, professional. So that's criteria number one. The second criteria is finding people that are either in college, in athletics right now, and either in a leadership position or seeking a leadership position on a team or later in life. And then the second person would be somebody who has already jumped into that quote-unquote life after sports. So they've moved on from athletics for one reason or another, and they're doing amazing things, whether it's in the business world with their own business. I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, themselves, but I think breaking it down really simply have the athletic background, and then be working towards a leadership position if you're still playing sports. And if you're done playing sports, you don't necessarily need to be in a leadership position, but I do like to find folks that if they're not in a leadership position in work, maybe they're contributing to the community and somehow, maybe they're a great family person. There's so many different ways to lead and a lot of times it just gets tangled up in work and in the professional world that I like to try to highlight all the different aspects of leadership. There is a lot that goes into the podcast, definitely not gonna lie. The most fun part by far is actually having the conversation, but the editing process to put out a really quality podcast week after week and to give it all the bells and whistles, that takes up a pretty good chunk of time in my evenings and sometimes on weekends. I could pay somebody, but I actually like doing the editing because I like to listen to the episode again where I can comprehend a little bit more versus when I'm having the conversation sometimes when you're facilitating, you're not totally in the moment and that's really the unfortunate part of being the interviewer, but it's also part of the deal and something that you just have to deal with if you want to bring guests on your podcast. So listening to it a second time is really actually a bonus for me, even though it takes up a little bit of time and it also helps me work on my public speaking. I can hear my mistakes. I can understand what filler words I'm using. It always changes. I always tend to pick up something else when I get rid of something. I'm finding a crutch here and there. So it just helps me stay sharp and stay focused. Maybe when I get a little bit older and a little bit more experienced, I won't need as many mental reps going into my head and my ears all the time. But for right now, it's definitely a really valuable part of the whole podcast experience and then to your point about the planning aspect that part definitely takes some time but it's really just about being focused and organized and planning ahead i've only one time gotten caught where i was a little bit behind and i didn't have anything in the bank and i had I had to, well I say I had to, I didn't really have to, but I wanted to because I like to put at least one episode out every week, scramble and put something together that maybe wasn't the quality of what I was expecting to put out that week. And had I planned ahead and had a couple episodes ready to go, 
that wouldn't have happened. The nice thing about doing these episodes is it's not an extremely timely thing. Every once in a while, there is a timely matter that we discuss, and I want to make sure people hear it. Like if there's a camp that people are going to attend, or there's an info session, whatever it is, I want to obviously make sure people hear that before the date is over. But as long as you're organized and you're able to plan ahead, I told you about how I identify people, so I just have a long running list. It's a spreadsheet that I keep adding to. I put the name, I put the reach out, if they responded or not. So that way it helps me keep track of who I've already reached out to. If I try, if, if I really want somebody on the show, I'll try to reach out multiple times. And a couple times that's actually worked. Other times they just simply keep ignoring you and that's okay too. But staying organized and planning ahead, I think, really helps limit the time that would go into that planning phase. So overall, it's there's definitely a lot that goes on behind the scenes to put these episodes together week after week, but I totally enjoy them. I love the feedback that I get, the excitement when somebody comes up to me and they say, oh, I just listened to your podcast, or hey, I just subscribed for the first time. It's just such a great feeling that I can't even imagine at this point not doing it anymore. So that's a big motivator to keep going out and finding new guests and to coming up with original content like I do with Danny now and like I do with my wife Christine and putting those out there so that people can hear different sides of not only my points of view, but other guests as well. The second question Rachel had was, How do you balance being an entrepreneur and working full-time? What have been some of the biggest challenges in keeping Talent 409 running so smoothly and crushing your professional job? I think that was also a few questions, LOL. And Rachel ended this question by saying, pumped to listen to this pod. Awesome, Rachel. You're going to definitely enjoy this because all the other questions were great. These questions that you sent me today are really great. So to answer how I balance being an entrepreneur and working full-time, it's not an even 50-50 split, obviously. My full-time job is very demanding, it's very people-focused, and I love doing that type of work, and I can't see myself not doing it in the near future, but it's also obviously time-consuming. It's at least 40 hours a week, sometimes you're doing a little bit of extra work here and there, so you have to obviously stay focused, It is my full-time job. It's the job that pays the bills. It's the job that I use money to reinvest into things like the podcast software that I need, the microphone that I'm using, different things for Talent 409. That's where that money comes from. So I do need to stay focused on what my priorities are with everything. Obviously, I want Talent 409 to succeed, but I can't get too far ahead with the approach that I've taken. Now, if I just went all in and I totally quit the traditional corporate nine to five gig, then it would be a different story, but that's not the route I decided to take. So I would say to that point, some of the challenges are a lot of the times where I can have a conversation with somebody, it's after traditional working hours, for example, it's on the weekends. Sometimes I'll have a day off here and there and I can do work during traditional times and talk to people, talk to coaches, talk to athletes, but a lot of my communication comes after hours and I'd say that's one of the biggest challenges to making things run as smoothly as maybe I'd like them personally to run. It would be easier if I had more time, but again, 
got to keep your priorities in check. So I would say that's probably one of the biggest challenges. The other challenge is just constantly thinking about how you are going to differentiate yourself from competition. I'm certainly not afraid of competition. I want to compete. I'm I'm a former athlete myself. I love competition. I think I thrive in it. But when you do something on the side and you're not committing full-time like some of your competitors are, it can get frustrating to see the progress that other people are making and sometimes the for lack of a better word, the lack of progress you're making. So one of the things that I've tried to do is to limit what I look at on social media or I guess not look at, but how I perceive things on social media, like just try not to compare myself so much. And I'm talking about my business. I'm really good on the personal aspect of not comparing myself to others. I've been really good about that for a long time. It doesn't bother me to see people's glamorous lives on the internet and if I'm not posting things I'm not like sitting on my couch or in my bed all rolled up what's wrong with my life saying those type of things but in the business sense that was definitely something that I had to learn how to get better with so I think not comparing myself to others just taking it one day at a time but also keeping in mind that entrepreneurial spirit being innovative how can I make myself available to the people that need me, the athletes, the coaches, sometimes the business people. That's what's always going through my head and that's the priority for Talent 409 is to be a great resource for people. I want to be a guide. I'm not the hero. I talk about this all the time. I'm just the guide for other people who are the heroes. My last question for this mailbag edition comes from our listener Matt and Matt says, I have an employee on my leadership team that is an incredibly high achiever slash hard worker, but a terrible leader. He's the longest tenured employee at my facility, but doesn't show much interest in being a leader beyond lead by example. Do you have any suggestions on engaging him to take a more active leadership role? Okay, Matt, I'm going to do my best to answer this question for you. So I guess my first question would be, what exactly did you mean when you said quote-unquote, lead by example. Did this person express to you that that's the way that they like to lead? And I get where your frustration comes from. It seems like this person can get their work done, will put the hours in, but isn't somebody that wants to be a teacher or be a mentor towards the others. I'd have to assume, and again, I'm sorry for making all these assumptions, but I'd have to assume that part of his job description, whether it's in his title or just a part of the description itself, is to be a leader of some sort, not just be a high-producing worker. If that's the case, then I would want to get a better understanding of what they actually mean by lead by example, because then I could open up a conversation. I think that's an important starting point is to have a conversation with this person. And I would start it and say, hey, I see you as a leader. You want to lead by example. But what does that actually mean to you? And let them tell you what they think. Based off of that, then maybe you can have some type of conversation that you've pre-prepared. And maybe conversation is the wrong word, but talking points that you pre-prepared to talk to them a little bit about what it is that you're looking for out of them as a leader. 
because is it they just don't understand what's expected of them or is it that their vision of a leader is different from theirs those are two different distinctions so i think my first suggestion is honestly just try to have a conversation now maybe you've already tried to have a conversation and this person shut you down well then you're digging into a deep hole of worms again you never want to just assume that somebody's not right for a leadership role but Maybe it's as simple as that. Maybe stripping that person of those responsibilities, whether, again, it's the title or written in the job description, and that means a pay bump or something of a demotion, that's how you get to that person. That's how you make them understand that the behavior that they're displaying is not what you, as the leader of that team, expect out of that person. Because ultimately, whatever happens falls back on you. And when I say you, I'm talking about Matt. So Matt, it may be difficult, but that may be a road that you have to explore. Taking away, stripping away responsibilities. And people respond in different ways to that. Sometimes it is a wake-up call and they come back stronger than they ever were before. Sometimes it just gets them out the door even sooner. But I think it's an appropriate step to take if you've already tried to have a conversation and understand what they mean by leading by example, and what your expectations are for them as a leader. Unfortunately, I think that's probably the best suggestion that I can think of. If I think of any more offline, I know how to get a hold of this person because they sent me the message so I know who it is, but that's a really difficult one. And again, all of these questions, I think they really highlight how difficult it is to be an effective leader. And I don't say that to scare people away from leadership opportunities. I just say it as a way to be realistic about the time commitment that it takes to be a leader and about the communication skills and the thinking skills and everything that goes into being a leader on a daily basis. A lot of it is putting out fires every single day. It may look glorious in movies and on TV, but leadership is really difficult work. So I commend all of these folks that wrote in these questions and are having difficulties or they've seen other people having difficulties and they're trying to help or they're trying to make themselves better. That's what this platform is for. That's why I'm here to try and help facilitate through. I think this was an awesome first round of mailbag questions. I hope I answered those questions for the people who wrote in I hope I answered them to your liking, and if you want to talk offline about them a little bit more individually, feel free to reach out, and I'm happy to do that. But that's going to wrap up the episode. There is no Thursday content this week. October is going to be a little lighter in that regard. I'm going to Aruba. Danny is playing softball for the fall, and my wife has a pretty busy schedule too. We will get you some additional Thursday content, but for now, the next episode will be next Monday, a regular guest episode. Please stay tuned for that.